Thank you and good morning to all of you. It's a pleasure for me to worship with you and to speak from God's word uh, this morning with you and share. Um, I pray that you'll be encouraged um, greatly by this psalm this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Psalm 66, and I'm going to read that in its entirety for us, and then I'll pray briefly before I begin. So Psalm 66. Starting in verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him, who rules by his might forever, who keeps eyes, uh, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, in these next few moments, uh, pray that your spirit would quiet our hearts. Help us to focus upon you. Give us ears to hear. Encourage our hearts. Give us your perspective that we might truly praise you from the heart and glorify your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we face many, many problems in the, in the Christian life. Uh, we live in a fallen world. We deal with our own sin issues that we're still growing out of uh, by God's grace. But there's one problem that most of us probably don't think about so much, uh, but I think it's a very real problem. It's what I call the problem of praise. And that might sound strange to you. What do I mean by that? How is praise a problem? Well, some of the common symptoms of this problem look something like this. 
you come to a worship service on Sunday morning, and you have a hard time engaging your heart in what's going on, engaging your heart in the songs that we sing. Maybe you mouth the words, but your heart's just in another place. You're just not feeling it in your heart. Maybe it's when you open your Bible and you read a psalm like this that begins with all of this praise language that seems very flowery and lofty, but your eyes and your heart just kind of glaze over and you just don't know what to do with all that. You're just not there in your own heart. Maybe your prayer life consists mostly of asking and not praising. Or maybe you're in a place this morning even that uh, you think about all this call to praise God and you, and you think, for what? My life's miserable right now. My life's in shambles. Things aren't going well. I don't even know where to begin to praise God. Now, we all have this problem of praise, I think, from one degree to another, depending on what you're going through. But the question I want to ask is, why is this the case? Why do we have this problem? Why is it so hard for us to get caught up in praising the greatness of our God? Well, there's many ways to answer that. You know, there's a theological answer of, well, we're still in process. You know, we're, we're still being sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ, and our faith is often short-sighted. We don't appreciate what we should. But I think more practically, we don't take seriously the character and the deeds of God that are recorded for us in the scriptures. Why, why don't we do that? Because we're too consumed with ourselves. We're too consumed with our own worries, our concerns, our fears, this problem, this circumstance. I think Psalm 66 can help us with this problem of praise. And I'll, I'll warn you off the, just off the top that you know, the outline you see in your, your bulletin there, um, I'm not going to really follow that in, a, in that order. It's going to be kind of taken together. And that's no fault of the churches. I didn't really give them an outline. So <laughs> they, they had to work with something. But, uh, but I think Psalm 66 can really help us with this problem of praise. Now, as I've mentioned earlier, in the first few verses, we have this universal call to praise. It's a, it's a call to all people, not just the people of God, not just the Israelites. It's a, it's a call to all the earth to praise God and even to shout for joy. This is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. And maybe, as I said, maybe those first few verses you're glazing over already. <laughs> you know, you don't know what to, can't really grab hold of that with your heart. And he even goes on in verse 3 to tell the people what to say to God. Now, just as a side note, that's a good principle to follow. Let the scriptures show you what to say to God in prayer, how to praise him, how to ask for things. That's praying according to his will. But he goes on to say in verse 3, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. So 
There's a call for the whole earth to praise uh, God, and it's due to him from all the earth, regardless of what men say or think about it. You know, the Lord is not merely the God of a particular corner of the world or one people of the world. He is Lord over all creation. He always, he's always been Lord over all creation. Not only when men acknowledge him to be so. And sometimes I think we get discouraged as believers, as the church, because we believe the lie that somehow God is, you know, to use a sports analogy, he's on the bench. He's watching the game happen. And he's waiting for an opportunity to be allowed into the game to make a difference. He's on the sidelines. By the way, this marginalized view of God, that his influence and his territory, so to speak, is small, is exactly how the nations uh, viewed their idols, their gods. They were territorial gods. They weren't gods over all creation. They, they were God of this people, of this area. And a lot of times when nations would take over other nations, they would adopt the gods of that territory. And, you know, the, the foolishness of idolatry involved in all of that uh, blows your mind. Because the scriptures talk about how, you know, man whittles an idol out of a piece of wood and carries them around, and the idol can't speak or hear or say anything or do anything. Um, sometimes we get to thinking about the true God as if he was an idol, that he can't do anything, that he's really a non-issue in the world. And we need to be reminded that, make no mistake, that the Lord is Lord of the whole earth. He's always been, and he always will be. Be encouraged by that. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Earlier in the Psalms, in the introduction to the Psalter as a whole, and Psalm 2 is a great psalm that depicts this, this lordship, where... You know, the Lord has set his anointed, uh, his Messiah, on his holy hill. And you get this picture of all the kings of the earth wanting to rebel against this uh, anointed one. And they, they want to throw off the fetters and the chains that God's put on them, and they want to rebel and gather up against him. Uh, do you know what it says in there? It says that the Lord looks down and laughs. He laughs at their futility at their rebellion. This is who our God is. Your God, your helper, is the maker of heaven and earth. Don't forget that. Is that your view of God this morning? Remember where your help comes from. This is the God we're called to praise, the God of the earth. So we're called to praise this Lord of heaven and earth, but we, still, we may be tempted to say, well, then, for what? Okay, he's, he's Lord, but why should I praise him? And the Psalms often give you reasons why. And this is where I you know, just label this, come and see. Uh, if 
Verse 5, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. It's as if the psalmist is saying to us, uh, you have trouble getting in the mood, <laughs> getting in the place to praise God? Come here, let me show you. Let me show you who this God is and what he has done. You've got to see this. I grew up uh, living in many different places, but, but one of the places that uh, I lived when I was in middle school was in Georgia. And my parents, uh, I'm not originally from the South, I've lived in the South for many years, but my parents uh, loved to visit and travel and do different things. And I remember they were, uh, when we moved down South, they were fascinated by the Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina, if, if you're familiar with that historic home that they've made into a museum of sorts, and you can tour it and all of that. And they love going seeing this house, uh, this Biltmore house. And I remember as a, you know, a young teenager, basically rolling my eyes, you know, we're going to see the Biltmore house again. <laughs> and yeah, I just, you know, probably what my kids do to me when I want to do things, they roll their eyes at me. But uh, uh, as a kid, you know, I didn't get it, you know, okay, so there's this big old house. It's old, it's big, it's fancy. Yeah, so what? Do I have to see it more than once? You know. Uh, but it wasn't until years later, it was actually after we were married, uh, we went back there with my parents, they wanted to go again, and I actually did one of those audio tours, you know, where you have the little headphones that you can get, and uh, you go to the different rooms, and the, they'll tell you about the history of the rooms and the things that are in there and what you can see. And boy, things started to click a little bit for me. Um, you know, I started to appreciate what, what these things were and the history behind it and all of that made it much more significant, uh, something that I could really grab a hold of. When was the last time that you took a tour of the character and the works of God? I mean, you know, taking a tour, you need to take time it's not just something you just, a passing thought. You need to take time to take a tour of the character and works of God, his awesome deeds toward you. So let's take this tour together through this psalm and let God's own words lead us, okay? Looking in verses 6 through 12, in one verse, verse 6, the psalmist mentions two significant events in the history of Israel. He refers to the Exodus, and when he says the crossing of the river, it's the crossing of the Jordan into the Promised Land. Now, both of these events involve a miraculous working of God, enabling his people to walk through on dry ground. And you can go back and read those narratives. But these two events really serve in many ways as bookends to the pattern of redemption that we see throughout the scriptures. What I mean by that is in the, in the first exodus, we have uh, leading out of bondage and slavery. And through the crossing of the Jordan, they enter into the promised land. So you, from out of bondage to the promised land, you have these events bookending and we know from other passages that God wasn't just in those events. He was in everything in between, too. 
for his people, leading them and guiding them. And incidentally, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament pick up on the, this pattern and show and depict it as ultimately being fulfilled in the work of Christ. He is the one who ultimately leads us out of bondage to sin and death and brings us in to the ultimate promised land, ultimately the new heavens and new earth. So in many ways, this, these events, the story of these events, is our story. It's in our story as we are connected to Christ. Now, much could be said about these two events, but I just want to highlight two things that I think maybe will emphasize uh, God's awesome deeds. The first is the circumstances of each of these events. If you look back at those narratives, the Exodus, God led the people in a strange way. He didn't lead them the quickest way out of Egypt. In fact, he had them go the long way. And he had them circle back down by the Red Sea and put their backs to the sea and wait for Pharaoh and his armies to come charging down on them. In the crossing of the Jordan, the, the narrative makes it very clear, emphasizes the fact that the crossing of the Jordan was the time when the Jordan was flooded. It was the least opportune time to cross the Jordan. Now, in each of these cases, from a human perspective, the timing was terrible. Have you ever felt that way about God and his working in your life or how you perceived it? You know, we're largely ignorant of all the things that he's doing for us, and we presume to know things, but oftentimes we're, we're perplexed. We think, Lord, this is terrible timing. I would never have done it like this. But what was God's perspective on these events? What is God's perspective on your life? Are you tempted to trust God only to the extent that you see a probable outcome in your circumstance? If so, if you're trusting Him only to that extent, who do you believe Him to be? Is He Lord over heaven and earth? see, in the exodus and the crossing of the Jordan, God was setting the stage to perform awesome deeds, awesome deeds of deliverance. Is his power not made perfect in our weakness, as Paul says? Do you believe that for your life? Nothing is impossible with God. This brings us to consider the second thing I want to highlight from these, uh, these refer this reference to these Old Testament events. And it's his character that's revealed in the midst of these events. Not just his deeds, but his character. And that's another uh, good practice to get in as you read the Word of God and you read about what God does. Think also about what is that thing that he did tell us about who he is? What does that tell us about his character? In the Exodus account, 
in the book of Exodus, right after they crossed the Red Sea, right after the event, we read the Song of Moses, which is a song of praise and really a theological interpretation of what just happened. God tells them, this is what I just did for you. And one of the questions that's raised is, who is like you? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. And the implied answer to that question is, no one. There is no one like God. Now I want to challenge us to ask a follow-up question to that. How is he like no other? You see, we often think God's unlike any other in that he's infinite and all-powerful. Those are true. Those things are very true. But you know what Scripture emphasizes? How God is not like any other? When that comes up in Scripture, it's in his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy that he's like no other. Now, that's pretty encouraging to think about. In fact, he's more gracious and merciful than you could ever be to anyone or even yourself. Have you ever thought about that? That's how merciful our God is. You see, trusting him involves knowing how he is like no other. Because if you don't consider that, you may think, okay, he's all-powerful in another realm somewhere but he's not with me or for me. In fact, he's so powerful, I don't know what he's going to, maybe he's going to do something to me. That's why we need to know how he is like no other. In fact, in this psalm, we see that he is for his people and against their enemies. He fights for them. We saw this back in verse 3, but also consider verse 7 where he says, he keeps watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Or in the New Testament, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 7 would, should be a great encouragement for us as we live in this fallen world. And we see all the raging of the nations, uh, all the raising up against Christ and his church all the opposition. No, God keeps watch. You ever, you ever been tempted to think, you know, Lord, don't you see what's going on? Don't you see what they're doing behind the scenes and, you know, all the deception and the lies and everything else? God knows. He sees. Does he who make the eye not see? Does he who make the ear not hear? As Psalm 94 says, so be encouraged. Now, so far, this tour has been more a tour of the triumph of God for his people, but we move into verses 8 through 12, and we see that God is also awesome in his deeds toward his people in their suffering, not just in their triumph, but in their suffering. The text tells us that he kept their souls in the midst of their suffering. And contrary to what we might think, and we often think this way, there is good reason to praise God in the midst of our suffering because we struggle with that. 
We say God is great, he's good to us, and then when something doesn't go our way or something gets difficult, we immediately forget who God is. And we are prone to think there is no good reason whatsoever that I should ever go through any suffering. There's got to be a problem. God's doing something wrong. There's no good reason why we should suffer. And it leads to all kinds of faulty thinking about how he relates to us. Let me give you a few examples. We might think, you know, obviously he's punishing me for some sin that he won't forgive me for. Something that I've done in the past, it's just so bad, he won't let it go, so, you know, I'm just going to have to suffer. Or we think, as the Israelites did when they came out of Egypt, God brought us out of here to kill us in the wilderness. Or maybe in our modern language, God wants to pull the rug out from under us. Just when we think things are going well, he's going to jerk the rug out and watch us fall. But what does the text tell us? What does scripture tell us? It tells us here that he tested them and tried them like silver. That's that's another way of speaking of he refined his people. He was doing things through their suffering to build them up, actually, for constructive purposes, not to destroy them. He was doing something for them, for their own good, even though it's not pleasant at the time, as the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, tells us that God disciplines us. Why? Because he wants to kill us? No, because he loves us like a heavenly father. And he wants, to, wants us to partake in his holiness, to be conformed to his image, to be made more like him, which is good. That's a good thing for us. Now, in the midst of our suffering, know this, that the enemy will attack you. He will tempt you to doubt God's loving intentions in the midst of your suffering. So I would just encourage us all to be prepared. Be prepared to fight with the truth, the scriptures themselves, to help us talk ourselves straight in a situation, to not run to these lies and these faulty ways of thinking, but run to the scriptures and talk to God about it. I just want to point out one thing in verse 12. He says, we went through fire and through water. That's an, you know, an image of you know, trial and suffering. It's used in other places in Scripture, namely uh, Isaiah 43, verse 2, where God speaks of his people and what he's going to do for them. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned or consumed. Why? Isaiah tells us because, and the Lord's speaking here, he says, because you are precious in my sight. And I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. I would also add Psalm 56, one of my favorite verses, 
where the psalmist says, aren't my tears in your bottle? He counts the numbers of hairs on your head and he knows the tears that you shed. That's who God is for you in the midst of your suffering. So not only was he with them through it, but he brought them out. It says he brought them out to a place of abundance. Believe that about your great God, his great deeds. He, he will complete the work he began in you. You have a delightful inheritance that you will enjoy for all eternity. And in the meantime, he is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. He will not take you backwards. He will not run you into the ground. You will never regret trusting and following after the Lord. He will not disappoint you. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. Don't presume to be his counselor. Don't presume to tell him what he should be doing, what he should not be doing. Submit to him. He knows. And he loves you greatly. Finally, the psalm shifts in verses 13 through 20, and I'll be fairly brief here. But it shifts into a first-person uh, account. And there's more of a direct exhortation to all who fear God, believers. You know, he, he made the call to praise to the whole earth, now he, he's, he's directing his attention personally to all who fear God. And after expressing his desire to give sacrifice and praise and obedience for what the Lord has done, it's as if he, he says, now you believer, come here. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you what he did for me, standing right before you what he did for me, not just what he did for the people in the days of old, but what he did for me. And what was this awesome deed that God did? He heard his prayer. He heard and answered his prayer. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like that much of an awesome deed to you. But think about it. The God of the universe hears your cries and responds out of love for you. Maybe we don't see this as an awesome deed because we really don't believe it. Maybe we don't believe. Maybe we've began to doubt that he actually hears, that he actually responds to our prayers. The psalmist says he sure, certainly does. And you may have a nagging feeling like you want to believe this, that he is awesome in that way for you. But doesn't the text tell us in verse 18, you know, he's not going to hear me if I cherish sin in my heart. So see, there's the catch. Yeah, sounds very good, but uh, yeah. I have sin in my heart, so I guess I'm out of luck. Before you jump to those conclusions, let's consider briefly, biblically, 
what verse 18 means. This idea of cherishing sin is to aim at sinning, to enjoy sin, to be bent on practicing it. It's not merely a, uh, an occasional, you know, I screwed up here, um, or just out of ignorance, you know, I committed a sin, but this is a conscious cherishing. And really what this is getting at is this is characteristic of the wicked man. Not of the righteous man, not of the one who belongs to the Lord. This verse is not saying to us that one must be sinless in order to be heard by God. None of us would be heard, right? Not even the psalmist would be heard. And he says, I have certainly been heard uh, by the Lord. So it's not saying that. In fact, he says, he has not rejected his prayer nor removed his steadfast love from him. Now, having God's steadfast love is being in covenant relationship with the Lord. It's, it's for a believer, for those who belong to the Lord. So the, the, the contrast here is not between sort of, you know, someone who's doing really well in the Christian life and someone who's struggling, whether they're going to be heard. It's a contrast between the unbeliever and the believer. And he's rejoicing in the fact that because he belongs to God, enjoys his steadfast love, he will be heard. And he has been heard. So believer, we don't merit a hearing before God by all our attempts to be sinless, which we never are completely in this life. We are heard favorably by God through Christ alone who paid for all our sins and credits to our account, his perfect righteousness. That's the gospel. So we, we, we got to apply this psalm according to the gospel, right? This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. You know, we don't just say in Jesus' name as, a, as sort of a magical phrase we tack on the end of our prayer to make it work. We pray in the name of Jesus because there is no other way to the Father except through the Son. There is no other mediator. And all the conditions of a favorable hearing before God have been met by Christ for us. I want to encourage you with that today. Don't misread that verse out of the context of the psalm and the entire Bible. We can really you know, the Bible's not lying to us when it says you can approach the throne of grace with confidence through Christ to find help in your time of need. That's very, very true. And if you think about it, we never obligate God to answer our prayers, but rather He, now think about this, He has obligated Himself to answer us according to His covenant promises, which are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made, made us partakers of these promises. That is an awesome deed for us and toward us. Now, what should, our be, what should our response be to all of this? There's many things to consider from this psalm. What should our response be to this problem of praise that I raised earlier? 
we must somehow turn our eyes from focusing on ourselves so much and focus on who God is and what he has done in his word. And that's really the key. How will you take a tour of his character and deeds this week? Well, there's no shortcut. You must go to the word of God. Now, I saw, I did a little research. I saw on your website um, that you have a suggest, some suggested reading plans to be reading through the scriptures for 2022. If you're not already doing that, you need to do it. Get on a reading plan. It doesn't matter which one. It doesn't matter how fast or slow it is. Just be reading the scriptures daily. That's going to give you a tour of his character and his deeds. That's going to help you fight against the lies in the midst of your suffering. And talk to God about what you're reading in prayer. You see, the world will not tell you about the great, awesome deeds of the Lord. I'll tell you just the opposite. It must be in his word. If we're not, our default is to think he's just like us. He's just like everybody else. With all our weaknesses, with all our limitations. That actually is the root of all our discouragement. So look to him. Look to his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your awesome deeds toward the children of man your awesome deeds toward us in the Lord Jesus. Help us to renew our minds by remembering what you've done and who you are, that we would be able to fight against the schemes of the devil, the temptations to think otherwise. Lord, help us in this. We need you. In Christ's name, amen.